was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told began with the holiday worlds of old. Now you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. For the holidays are the result of much fuss and hard work for the worlds that create them for us. Well, you see now, quite simply, that's all that they do. Making one unique holiday, especially for you. But once a calamity ever so great occurred when two holidays met by mistake. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing The Nightmare Before Christmas, starring Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, Ken Page, Danny Elfman, and Paul Rubens, directed by Henry Selleck. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Nothing is more suspicious than Frog's Breath. It's Gally in Glasgow. I'm just a kind of loosely tied sack of bugs. It's Devlin in London. I'm Bone Daddy. It's Patrick. I'm in Leicester this week. I suppose we're a little bit early, but it is the festive season, so why not start now? Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Happy holidays from me, because I'm part of the war on Christmas. (laughs) You're part of what? It's me, the one that everyone's always talking about. It's just me. Oh, no, you were... Uh... <laughs> Literally the one person who's ruining it for everyone. Happy non-denominational holidays, jerks. What? Oh, Devlin, I never had you down as, like, you know, a Willem Dafoe antichrist. <laughs> oh, <so. laughs> Willem Dafoe. Yeah. There's no coming back from that. We should have saved the Christmas wishes to the end of the film. Well, maybe talking about this film will instill in me the Christmas spirit, and then by the end of it, I'll stop being such a Grinch. Yeah, hopefully A Visit to Christmas Town might help, but we will find out. Uh, so today we are doing Patrick's Choice of a Throwback, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. So Patrick, I guess the big question we, we always like to ask is... Uh, why the nightmare before Christmas? Apart from obviously the fact that it's the seasonal holidays, I'm choosing this from my own perspective because this, for me, and I, from your reaction last time, I don't think it's for you. I watch this every year. This is this is a film I always watch at Christmas, and um, I'm quite keen to debate with you the Christmas or do you watch it at Halloween kind of debate because of the title mm-hmm. of the film and the themes in it. And I remember when I was a lot younger, um, I, I fully remember this being advertised. I remember being on the cinema. I remember asking my dad to take me. We went to the Odeon in Leicester. And um, at the time, one of the things I really came out with, uh, blown away by, was the short film, Vincent, because it, it preceded it at the cinema at the time. Oh, really? I don't know whether you, you caught that mm. this week. Um, uh, I, yeah, I did watch yeah. the... I did watch the short film in preparation for uh, for this. Yeah, it's quite handy. You can you can find it on YouTube, which is quite good. But um, at, for years after uh, we we got the VHS, and 
VHS didn't come with a short film, Vincent. And for years, I was trying to find it as a when I was a child. And my mum and dad were trying to find it. We couldn't get it anywhere. Um, how it, time it came out much awesome. much later on a, um, uh, a, a, a I think it was called Cinema Sixteen. It's like a short films collection. It was like a DVD. Yes, I remember it, watching it, sort of around university era. Well, when it came, when Nightmare Before Christmas came out on DVD as well in the 2000s, it's it's a bonus feature on that, so you can watch it. And that's what I have now, as long as well as the making of and all of that. Um, so Vincent went away from me for a long time because I couldn't find it. But Nightmare Before Christmas came became an absolute staple in our house. Me and my brother, he's five years younger than me, um, but he caught on to it very quickly when he was young and. That's another thing I want to discuss with you is kind of uh, the how accessible this is for children because it is there are scary things in there I'd say and there are quite um, the way it's designed in Tim Burton's mind that's come come to life there are things that I think um, some young children would like some young children wouldn't and be quite put off by but for us well actually my, my brother's just had a baby I've just become an uncle. And um, my first oh, gift wow. to him was um, right. yeah, l- little baby Erwin. And the first gift I got him was a, mo- uh, a mobile, a mobile, which is Nightmare Before Christmas. So it's got nice. above his cot now. He's got Oogie Boogie, Sally Zero, and Jack Skellington <laughs> wandering around. Him. Wow! Because um, we're such we we are fans of the characters and the, the way it looks. And I think um, I was deliberating like, is this a bit? A skeleton above a child's bed is a bit weird, but I'll have to send you a photo later. But when you see it, it's, you know, it, it, in that crocheted, even that form there, the smiley skeleton face, I still think it's quite soft and uh, accessible there. But um, yeah, this film's stayed with me for a long time. I, I, I used to watch it every year, partly because it was always on television every year. And in fact, mm. um, this week in the UK... Uh, it was on ITV two, I think two nights was, ago, yeah. actually. And I, yeah. and um, I was a bit annoyed because I missed it. <laughs> it was a shame. So I had to go out and buy. A, yeah, a but you don't want to watch uh, it with adverts, do you? But I haven't seen it in, I want to say, about six or seven years. And and I think okay. partly down to the fact that I um, I kind of got burnt out by the burn aesthetic and uh, and i think i wanted to just kind of leave it behind uh but we'll talk about tim burton and his influences and his um his role in this film because we will shatter some myths i think when we go on to talk well, i about hope so it. yeah um yeah um but but yeah so that that's me patrick and then devlin because you're you're not i don't perceive you as much of a disney man or and after our discussion with some brothers some brothers you're not exactly a musical person <laughs> <laughs> I think as politely both, as I could put that <laughs> these are both fair assessments we were not really a Disney household whether or not it was just that like when we were growing up uh, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what it was but we, yeah we didn't watch a great deal of Disney movies when we were kids I mean the ones that I remember well would be like Aladdin and The Lion King and apart from that pretty much none and yeah I, um, I get really uncomfortable when, when people sing um it's it's less <laughs> i find it less annoying when people do it in uh uh animations and 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 stop motion animations and stuff like that I, I, it's um it feels a little different um but uh no i've 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 always really liked this film this was one that i also watched very young um 
and yeah, I watched it kind of every Christmas, give or take. I would say most Christmases since I was a kid. I've I've seen this as well. What's weird is that um, until like watching it back now with, you know, in preparation for this and having to try and actually remember what happens from one minute to the, to the next stuff kind of slips considering how frequently I've watched it. It's not like every second of it is burnt into my memory. It's always just kind of little moments here and there. I think I watch it quite passively and I just, you know, I, I just sort of enjoy it, get swept along in it and then kind of forget it a little, which is, which is quite strange. Yeah. Well, um, well, I want to just, I want to dispel that, um, that myth that everybody at work and I say everybody, it's not a consensus for the entire world, but it was four people who, uh, who all went, Oh, <laughs> Tim Burton. I love that film. And I'm like, Tim Burton, Tim Burton, Tim Burton. And in fact, I made the same mistake when, uh, when you revealed that it was going to be discussing it in the, in the, uh, in the last episode. So, um, so I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. So first and foremost, the director is Gally. Oh, it's Henry Selleck. It's Henry Selleck. But Mm. I can see why there's a pre, like a misconception about uh who the director is because what's the whenever you see a poster or the dvd box how is the film or anything how is the film displayed it's displayed yeah, it's, it's built tim burton the nightmare yeah. before christmas every, every time <laughs> yeah. i've ever seen it yeah and, and also i mean not only that it's building that kind of that really spindly gothy font of his yeah. that yeah. you know it, it denotes that it is and i mean to be to be totally fair it was um, based on a, a treatment that he wrote. It's based on a poem that he wrote. He yeah. apparently designed kind of every single character, or at least generated the basic sketches to design every single character. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where I bought more into Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> I've got a, a beautiful book, which is um, mm. it's like a, the Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a storybook, but it's all his drawings. It's all yeah. his concept art. It's all his design, and everything was his design. The the only thing that really he didn't fully have in this was a script. So the story and yeah, the poem and the idea, and he was really keen on getting this film up and running. That, um, but I think at the beginning he wanted to sell it as kind of like a Christmas special thing, but um, he mm. was encouraged to like to go down the film route, but. Because he didn't have a script, he just he just had a loose kind of idea of what Jack Skellington's journey was going to be. Even like Danny Elfman says, like, "What am I doing, Tim?" <laughs> he didn't know where the story's going, <laughs> and he's sitting down like every day and say, "Right, so after this song, what happens next? Oh, this happens, this happens," and he go away and he write a song based on that conversation. And then the next day, then after that song, what happens? And that's how they wrote the kind of plot to it, really. Dialogue came from mm-hmm. other con- contributors, and and uh, but at the time, Tim Burton was—I mean, he was tied. He was big money at the time. He'd just come off the back of Batman. He was tied in to Batman Returns, and he'd started prep for Ed Wood as well. So he, he really wanted to direct this, but he couldn't. So he called his mate Henry Selick because they met at Disney Studios. Mm-hmm. They started off as animators when they were younger there. Uh, back back when John Lasseter was there, and I think they worked together on the Fox and the Hound um, and things like developing things like that. And he'd done his short film Vincent, as I mentioned before. 
and Selick was training there as well. And just to give an idea of the gravitas of who Henry Selick is, because he's awesome, he did. He went on to do James the Giant Peach and Coraline, which are, are two amazing stop frame animation films as well. Yeah. And so he directed it. And while what's really great though about Burton and Selick is they both say, like Selick will say, yes, I directed it, but it's a Tim Burton film. Because he fully, he's fully aware that the, the look, the aesthetic, the, you know, he was given notes and from Burton. Burton was sent, um, uh, you know, footage every week to, to review and send his notes. But Selick was the director and Tim Burton was the creator. And Burton always says Selick's the director. Yeah, I think the, uh, the line he used, wasn't it, was, um, I read an interview, was Tim Burton laid the egg and I hatched it, I think is uh, what Selick said. Which is a is a really nice way of putting it, I guess. I guess, and this is not to kind of discredit Tim Burton in all of this. I think it's just more to give credit to uh, to Henry Selick, who is kind of the forgotten man, I guess, in this. If you think about it, at the time, like when did you ever have such a, a an outstanding cinematic feature length um, stop from animation film that was you know this successful and commercial and and renowned and you didn't really up until this point we yeah, had it's, um... it's kind of unprecedented like i, I think yeah, there was yeah. definitely times where uh you know you were saying that uh tim burton had, had thought maybe it would be like a holiday special like a tv holiday special yeah um which you know they usually ran what a, around an hour to be fair the, mm. the feature is only about 10 to 15 minutes longer than that but the yeah. scope of it and especially the scope of it in the in the technical details and stuff is just yeah, it is. I d- the only thing I'm really aware of is Dougal and the Blue Cat in 1970. Uh, it's quite okay. a po- popular one. This is, that's the magic roundabout. But that was a really yeah. fucking weird thing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And at the time in the UK, I suppose we were a little bit more used to stop from animation in our, yeah. uh, in our television. Because of art, you know, there's Morph and there was Creature Comforts and Wallace yeah. and Gromit the Great and the Wrong Trousers actually came out in 1993, the same year as this. So there's, um, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a, especially like in European cinema, there's kind of a, a fertile ground of like um, basically art house animation. you got guys like yeah. the, the Brothers Quay and Jan Svankmeyer and, and Valerian Borovchik who were doing stuff. Jan Svankmeyer and the Brothers Quay still doing it to this day, who do like really incredible, but it's, it's very much art house. It's almost to the point where it's, you know, the Brothers Quay would, would have exhibits in art galleries rather than mm-hmm. in an actual cinema. So, yeah, the, there isn't really anyone who's who was doing this kind of stuff with, yeah, with, yeah. with like you say, with, a, with one eye towards actual commercial success and another eye towards just yeah. pushing the boundaries of the art form forward. Well, Hardman didn't get one out till Chicken Run in 2000 as well. Should we just just say what stop motion animation is, just to give people an appreciation for the time and effort and the precision it must take to even do a five minute short film, let alone a 76 minute feature. So anyone that doesn't know what stop motion or stop frame animation is, it's uh, it's an animation that's captured one frame at a time, physical objects that are moved between frames. And when you play them back in sequence, the images imitate movement. And it's something that's used in uh, in 2D, what we would normally like traditional animation. So your normal Disney films like Jungle Book, etc. But this is with physical puppets and you are moving them. And it must be so laborious. I think I remember at uni, did we, we may have had an option to do I, a stop motion yeah, well, animation. I did the animation module at university and then I never showed up for it. 
<laughs> I did a little bit in Prague with this uh, German filmmaker and he did this piece on like consumerism and McDonald's and we had um I helped stop frame animate these hamburgers crawling up his body. Um, and it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> Just it, and it does it, take, it took ages, but that we had these burgers stuck to him, and they were like trying to eat him. And it took yeah, it took a while. But it, it was good. It was good fun because that's quite physical with the human. Yeah. But I can't imagine a quarter scale model having to move them and just the, the just puppets the, in this are are enormous right like watching that um like a foot watching or a the, foot the, and a half the making or something which i mean you can tell you can you can tell just in the insane amount of detailing that they can get into the like you know you were you were saying that opening sequence where they they open the door to halloween town yeah and you see the um the scarecrow which you later find out is is jack, jack. but look at his clothes that in. is blowing in the wind jesus like every single like rag is rippling completely in time and the puppet is turning, and the camera is is is, uh, is dollying in. The 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 timing on stuff like that is just insane. Just to give a bit of, with this film, especially, it took three years to make, and they were only getting one minute footage a week when they were shooting. And can you imagine having to move that model twenty four times, just intricately, tiny little movements, eyes. Mm mouth hand rippling like the clothes like you said background all of that the camera moving at the same time they had these motion control cameras which yeah. were incredible for 24 times for one second footage i mean how do you how do you keep that in your head how do you keep because you're only moving like you say you're only moving a few, like a few millimeters each time how do you how do you keep the the expression look because you know that when you see kind of um, very amateur stop motion animation, like anyone who can be asked to do a stop motion animation has my respect. But um, <laughs> when you see people doing like kind of you know like amateur stuff, uh, people doing their first couple of, of little things, usually you know that you can see that you know it's very jerky and that the movements kind of don't go in time and and things just sort of shuffle and they look like they're sliding around and stuff and. and when you see the contrast between that and between this and what you've got is these like sweeping expressions. And um, I just, I, it's, it baffles me that anyone can keep that in their head over the weeks that it must take to accomplish one sequence. Yeah. But you know, in this, it's so cinematic with sweeping camera, panning, tracking, all of mm. that. And to get the camera moving at, and the model in sync, it's it does blow my mind. It does. It blew. It blew my mind as well. And and you've actually um, hit upon something that really impressed me in rewatching this, which the is you said it earlier, Patrick, because Devlin does well the cinematography, and also because Devlin really does hate musicals. <laughs> one aspect of a musical, and we discussed it because it was one of the shining lights in Seven Brides for Seven uh, Brothers, is the dancing. We don't have choreographed dancing in this film, but what we do have is we have a camera that is essentially being choreographed with the music yeah. and the puppetry. And my God, it's undeniable the skill and the technique and the craftsmanship on display is worth your time alone. It's incredible to think that this was, this is at a time where they hadn't done this before and on this scale. So Disney had to essentially invent technologies and build a new studio and get new facilities and fund this as a separate mm. entity to you know that they've been doing cell animation and then this was completely yeah. new and 
and to be so smooth and look at that amazing for what is really a first attempt at a feature from a studio it is is impressive the um the disney of it all is quite interesting as well because they were what coming off aladdin they're a year before lion king so we've got two pretty big like not pretty big just gigantic hits well it's their golden age of animation it's the golden age of animation but later on in the same decade they have the big slump, don't they? They have the straight-to-video sequels yeah. of yeah. all the bigger hits. Oh, which is when they actually tried to do Nightmare Before Christmas 2 as well. Oh, yeah. As a, a, a computer-animated one sure as well, but Tim Burton said, fuck off. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, did, they own yeah. the rights. Uh, is, that, is that right, Patrick? So I, They do, but Tim still has like some control over it. Uh, well, he must do if he could, um, if he could basically revoke them making a sequel and it is surprising with the sort of the success and the culture that follows uh, and the fandom that follows this property that in a world now of just ips that they've never gone back and done a sequel but i guess because of the time effort money and the uh, and the artistry that's uh, required they i mean you couldn't do this with cgi could you because that would just be well, it just wouldn't I work, know. I don't think. Because, because you, do you watch the? Have you been watching the new Leica Studios animation stuff as well, which, which marries up the stuff I, I haven't no. the CGI, especially to fill in backgrounds and to help with some green screen. Is that is that Kubo and the Two Strings? Is it? It is, and um, uh, Coraline was as well, no. and Box Trolls well, and yeah. uh, Paranorman, and that, you know that's where Henry Selick went, and that they're kind of. Front runners of stop frame animation at the minute that they are doing really visually stunning stuff and really pushing the boundaries and new techniques and Ardman have followed suit as well um, even with uh, Early Man that they were doing things they'd never done with green screen and uh, and adding things there as well. I mentioned it to Devlin actually uh, in the week when we were prepping for this episode because I I was rem- I was trying to remember how I would how I felt when I first saw. Um, saw all these animated films, and not just the stop frame, but also uh, The Lion King. And I remember when I came out of The Lion King, and the only reason why I'm going on a slight divergent here is because uh, uh, this week I watched the 2019 Lion King, the photorealistic mm-hmm. yeah. animated live action, whatever they want to call it, but it's you know it's David Attenborough's Lion King, essentially. And, uh, and I remember when I watched it, I was so uh, immersed and inspired by the world and the vistas that I bought a coloring in book. And then once I colored that book in, which was just, you know, the, the, forget, you know, forgive me, I was like eight years old. Um, but then, oh, I thought um, you meant I now, the 2019 one. To... <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> Imagine that. But no, um, so I, uh, so I know, and then I bought a how-to guide, which was a sort of paint by numbers, how to draw Simone and Pumbaa and etc etc and one of the things that I think really resonated with people back then and I think they still do now because you don't get many stop frame animation films and you certainly don't get ones that have got the aesthetic Hmm. that the Nightmare Before Christmas has got is that um, I was truly inspired by the animation and when I watched the recent Lion King the one thing that really bothered me was it was so photorealistic that I was thinking if I was a child now watching this would I be inspired? And that's not to demigrate the the artists that have created it via computers, but there is something about handmade, tactile, something you can feel, something you can touch, not made in a computer, that 
I just think is um I just think it's better, which um makes me probably sound like a bit antiquated, but I do. I I I had wondered the same thing actually as to whether that was something that because clearly it's something that really stuck with us and struck a chord with us. I don't know whether that's I would be intrigued to see if that's something that that goes for kind of general audiences, right? Whether they whether they care? Like do you think that the amount of of sheer kind of physical and and this the thing is 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 not to say that creating a CGI animation is easy. Mhm. I can't imagine it is. I'd imagine it's extraordinarily difficult, but it's difficult in a way which feels a little remote, I think. And I think also it's so omnipresent now. Like every film has some, well, not every film, but certainly every major blockbuster has got some form of CGI in it. You don't see this kind of uh, artistry very often. So when you do, I think it really does make an impact. But this, uh, the talking of the physicality is, is exactly why Tim Burton... Uh, kind of push for stop frame for this and was interested in it and when, when you look at his back catalog uh and i wonder if you saw in oogie boogie's uh dice in this you saw the snake coming out of snake eyes it was like yeah. the snake in beetlejuice mm-hmm. and when you watch beetlejuice it is yep. full of stop frame elements in there that I, I still really enjoy those elements today um and you know we, we've spoken about before with uh, the influence of harry housen and, and terminator with the uh, with the Terminator uh, approaching um, Sirogana, and just yeah. how ominous and physical that is, and even though it's a bit, you know, it hasn't aged greatly, the physical presence of that at the time still, you know, has an impact. Hmm. And it, it, like you said, kind of that that physicality, I think he's extraordinary, and it's it's amazing to look at. It, everything has a, a weight and a. The, the curvature, the the way the light reflects off them, everything about, and and then when you consider the sheer um, technical prowess of it, it it is something to really delve and get lost into. The stop frame animation for this story and this world that they're going to present, it's integral because it's inherently creepy. Like I always associate stop frame animation. We talked about it in the Terminator. Yes, you know you said like it looks a bit dated. But it's creepy. Like, I remember Jason and the Argonauts, and I still remember the skeletons that they battle, which is done out of necessity. But even if like, you look at the old King Kong, it's creepy. Like, it's just something about the way that it's jerky motion that makes you like feel like this is weird, this is a little bit creepy. And I think for this film and this story... I, I would I would hate to see this done with CGI. Ooh, well, no, if you think like um, how many uh, how many horror films are there about creepy dolls? Yeah, yeah, well, this is it. Yeah, and and I think that's I think that's what what it is. Like there's there's something about a kind of something which is lifelike and moves in a lifelike way, but isn't alive. Which is just a little unsettling. At the very beginning, we have the song, which is very catchy, and we can talk about Danny Elfman shortly, please, because. This is Halloween's great number to open the film on, and um, we're, I think the music really, really drives this film. And you know, we can talk about the animation, how impressive that is. The music of the songs for me really drive the film and are really impressive in themselves. The lyrics are great, and it's a really nice introduction to the tone of the film and where you know what we can expect and to introduce the characters. And, and we learn that Jack is quite disillusioned with you know doing halloween every year and he looks for something new this is halloween which i have heard in a nightclub in hungary as a punk rock version (laughs) 
<laughs> like it's it, it's a very popular song and I think it's very catchy you go away humming this one and what a great opening right boys and girls of every age would you like to see something strange come with us and you will see this our town of Halloween this is Halloween this is Halloween I am the one hiding under your bed. Teeth ground sharp and eyes glowing red. I am the one hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. It's wonderful. And it, so we would normally say in an action film that actions action equals character well in this music equals character and the way that they move equals character so you see like he is the pumpkin king isn't he and everyone celebrates him and we've got this weird parallel which i i i'll get into some of my nitpicks and i would say they're just nitpicks but it's parallel doesn't it with the pumpkin king being this you know jack who is on top of the world and you have the contrast of Sally, who is, you know, she's oppressed. Well, as I mentioned before, it's Danny Elfman. He did all of Tim Burton's films up until this point. They have a really strong collaborative uh, relationship. And I'm glad for the film because Elfman really brought things to it. Not least, he is the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Because um, mm. he's voiced... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Damn it, I've forgotten the, the guy who does his voice, but he, he just... It's uh, Chris up. Sarandon. That's it, thank you. From, uh, from Fright Night. That's Princess Fright. Bride. Well, yeah, it depends oh, which one's your yeah. point of reference, but yeah. But he, he wasn't... Apparently, the singing wasn't really working for him, and Danny Elfman sang it. And it, I mean, it, it marries up very well. You couldn't tell the difference, really. You know when you see the, I'm the clown with a tearaway face, and he rips off his face and carries on talking... <laughs> That's quite an image. You know, there, there are adults that are very scared of clowns now. And for children, this is a PG. I think, like, some kids might struggle with that opening because there's a, there's a scarecrow on fire. There's the terrible, um clown. There's something. There's a snake living under the bed. And yeah, vampires they, and all it's sorts. It's all that they, that they really don't hold back on the kind of... It, it would be... It would be to the detriment of the thing if if you could tell that they were trying to neuter the kind of the oh, yeah. the horror influences. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense to just kind of be playful with them. But yeah, like it, the the characters are, are just grotesque. That dude who's just dripping all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's horrific. I really like the uh, the werewolf as well. It just it kind of reminded me of Monster Squad. Yeah. But I just the way he <laughs> moves. I love the way he moves when he's stacked, isn't he? He's so wide. <laughs> Patrick, though, you asked the question, what would be your cutoff then? Do you think maybe would be too young to watch this? Oh, uh, I don't know. I think I think this is a, a real case of you have to judge your children. You know what they, they're like, because on one hand, children, I think they, I think this film offers an opportunity where children, they know that it's maybe a bit more grown up in its themes because, it, you know, it, it, it's Halloween, it's. Halloween's a, can be a scary time for children with trick or treat, but then again, trick or treating is fun and dress up, and they, they can either buy into that or you get some quite some children who it does bother and it, it and it will um, be a problem for clowns. You know, ad- adults have problems with clowns, 
so it's it's a hard one. I think I think a parent's got to judge their child and understand what their limitations are. Uh, if you can get through this is Halloween, then you're fine because it is tongue in cheek. It is playful. It is it is you know delighting in this deliciousness of horror because it, it's that's what it's for. This this scene it's to set you up and to understand how much fun. Halloween can be like a fantastic uh, gateway to enjoying this sort of stuff, isn't it? And it's got everything, hasn't it? It's got all the horror staples you can think of. It's got smoke and fire and all sorts, and the color palette. You know, it's black, it's white, it's orange. It's all the staples of Halloween, and it, it's a bloody fun song as well that stays with you for a while. Well, that juxtaposition is is great, isn't it? the kind of the joyous nature of the music and the bombastic nature of it as well. And it's one of the reasons why I think Elfman and Burton have always kind of worked because I've always felt like it's kind of carnival music, isn't it? It's yeah. Like... But it's a, it's a very nice way of setting up as well the language of the film uh, for, for Halloween Town because, again, it's quite fun to have dialogue that says how horrible it is and how, you know, how and then being happy about how horrible something is. Whereas later on, you know, Jack's having to correct them saying, no, how jolly it is when he wants them to turn hmm. their attention to Christmas and how Christmas works. So it's nice setting up a language and a, and a, a difference of vocabulary for each town as well at, at this point. I, I really liked, um, there was, there was a moment on the, um, which came through on the making of the documentary, which, um, they were talking about the, the design of the town itself and, uh, the things that they did in order to, um, make everything look well to look as much as it could like the kind of scratchy ink pen illustrations yeah 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 like edward gorey i I had a note of that because i knew you'd like that and i knew you'd know the artist yeah like edward gorey and of course like tim burton's own illustrations you can see this little spidery pen work everywhere and and it, it speaks to the the level of 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 the detail they were putting in it and it's not just a case of well then we need to build this out of plywood and then it's like no, they they scratched lines into all of the floors to make it look like somebody had scribbled it out really quickly. Because gals, you were talking about how uh, the the specific art style that you really responded to in um, the Lion King, you know, that you really responded to the character design and the way that they were drawn, and you wanted to recreate it and you wanted to do drawings of it. I think it it, it really it illustrates the the kind of the the subconscious power that a certain type of illustration has like when somebody has a real clarity of line work or when somebody has like a real kind of a simplified but really powerful aesthetic it just it sort of worms its way into your brain almost without you even knowing it i can't i can i can only imagine the amount of people that would have seen this and seen other um burton illustrations like you say from the from the uh the illustrated book or the I think he did a, another few books. One was like the melancholy death of Oyster Boy. I kind of just imagine me and a whole lot of other kind of sullen teenagers sitting around and desperately trying to recreate that um, that that style of sketching. As much as we are lord in this aesthetic, I don't know about you guys, but there was a moment when I jumped off the train uh, for for Tim Burton, and I, I'm not sure if everyone has, but. Where he just ended up, he ended up seeming like he was just repeating himself. But we'll maybe leave that for later on. Um, but certainly, you know, th- th- he, yeah, 
his 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 whole brand, his whole aesthetic. I oh, don't do that. You got to tell me what you're talking <laughs> about now because I've, I've I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, all I'm saying is that so I think this is him at his. I say him. I think this aesthetic, it's it's at its apex at this point. You have Beetlejuice, Batman, but we'll say that Batman is more of a a studio film for him. Edward Scissorhands, and then this, and. And then later he makes Edward, and but his whole aesthetic is baked into those films. And then later on, he kinds of ends up repeating himself. I don't know. You got Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Sleepy well, Hollow, I got... think Sleepy Hollow is a strange one because it, it, you're right in that it is basically a a bit of a sort of greatest hits. There's pumpkins and there's the color is desaturated yeah, to the point where great. it's basically monochrome. And and yeah, yeah. Well, the blood yeah. was orange. Which is white, red, red in that film because of how which and which is all great, but I I I would have to say that yeah, it, it did feel very much like a kind of um, uh, I don't know, almost like that's the point at which it becomes a little bit like self pastiche. I don't know, but then but then I'd argue again though at another stop frame animation film in Frankenweenie, I think Frankenweenie is like completely, it's not even. It's not that. It, it's just what he enjoys making. I don't think it's. I don't think it has that mm. problem, Frank and Weenie. Just to just to give a good example here. Oh no no no! Um, I mean, uh, yeah. Oh no! I, th- I think I think you're right. That, that, yeah, it did seem like he was he was interested again for that one. But Gally, you're a big fan of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I am not a fan of Planet of the Apes, and that you is love where Ape the train Lincoln. stopped for me, and I got off. I <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the one. That... You damn dirty ape! You. <laughs> well, Okay, okay. It feels like I'm I'm kind of having a bit of a go at Tim Burton, but you know what the reason is is because so as a as an aspiring creator and wanting to be a filmmaker, Tim Burton I think was the first filmmaker that genuinely before Spielberg and whatnot, but visually his visual look of films. I'd, I'd say the same, Gally. I know exactly what you're going to say. He's the first one that I recognised as there's a director that I can pinpoint his style. Yeah. And then, so I, so I watched all of his films because I was in love with that aesthetic. And then I was like, okay, but you're not evolving. And then unfortunately he made Planet of the Apes, which was dreadful. And even though I got pulled back in by Big Fish, cause I actually think that one's actually quite good. I mean, I tried, I tried to watch the Alice in Wonderland films. Oh. I tried to, even Sweeney Todd, I thought was, I, I, I must was have, not I, did, good. I did, I did quite enjoy Sweeney Todd, but, um, I, I have been having, uh, put my, my three weeks or two weeks in or however long I was on Alice in Wonderland 4 and I was very excited about that one and then I watched it at the cast screening <laughs> I mean yeah, was a, it's a sad indictment when when you <laughs> you know you were on the film and you you still didn't enjoy no, it's, it, so. it's, it's, it's well the, the problem is that it's it's very ugly as a film like for a guy that we're talking about who has like an incredible yeah, like yeah. Uh, uh eye for aesthetics and that he was you know a, a filmmaker that we all really liked his stuff like house in Wonderland looks terrible i I, I think i think what i'm saying patrick is i put him on a pedestal like i did with tarantino because in it and, and, and hear me out because i know that sounds like a bit of a weird comparison but before the internet before streaming services before you could access all these weird and wonderful films from the past Burton was bringing these, you know, these films from the 1920s that you've never, you've never seen, really, certainly at that age. And he, he's bringing you something new. He's popularizing it. And I thought, like, Tarantino did the same with black exploitation and the Grindhouse stuff and all the, all the 70s films that you've never seen, but he had. 
Yeah, like teen teen goths aren't going to be watching the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari unless they've seen it referenced in a kids' film. Well, and this is it. And I, I actually it was going to feed into a question, which is, I mean, because I was for the shortest period of time a bit of a goth. I uh, I went through it for about three or four years, and <laughs> I would say that you know Burton was my uh, my Messiah for a bit. And I guess Planet of the Apes really. <laughs> Really did, really did burn me. <laughs> strong words. Oh, strong, strong words. I'm words. just imagining you with black nail varnish. Oh no, I didn't have that, but I did have a, an eyeshadow. No, I did. So I wore eyeshadow. I did have a choker. So <laughs> I reckon you'd look like the guy on Scott, her first ex-boyfriend on Scott Pilgrim. That'd I, be you. I did, okay. mate. I did. I listened to you know. I listened to Corn. I listened to Papa Roach. I listen to those shit bands. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, we all make mistakes. But my point being is that, you know, he really did permeate the pop culture. And he really did create, like, a monumental shift in empowering did, yeah, outliers and goths and but weirdos. That's, that's and the thing outliers. we were saying, like, how, it, how accessible he hmm. makes these things. It's, I think, like, and just go, because it is an animation and it's kind of a children's film, it's children buy into it in a different means than when you've got that understanding of uh Tim Burton's style and you watch it because it's quite joyous in you know who else joys and enjoys mm. horror and that that world and but then I, I always maintain that people like being scared and I think that comes from childhood and if you like being scared in the right way um you could and like I, I think this film is a perfect example of it because it's it's something that you know when you're younger you can i think you know that it's supposed to be scary and because you're not scared and you can accept it and you you feel quite grown up watching a film like this because that's how i see it anyway i don't know whether you, I, you I think so that. also yeah it provokes a reaction and and it's and it's cool yeah. like it's it's you know it's it's cool to kind of get an immediate feeling from from watching something and um i i also must admit to being a black fingernail polish team <laughs> i've told you the story right that well, I, I i knew that about yeah you. <laughs> you know it's uh you know walking the streets of darlington with my blue hair got a pasty thrown at me once for being a window <laughs> is, is that it um oh, so you know uh, um but i would say I used to have a chain for my wallet on my baggy jeans and a skateboard. Still have one. Oh. That's maybe as far as I went. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was so yeah. well done. <laughs> but um, uh, I remember certainly going to a lot of, uh, basically like the entire aesthetic of, I guess, like the whole third wave of emo bands. Because emo bands used to be, you know, uh, um, shy kids with horrible center partings and glasses and backpacks and then suddenly within the space of about six months they all became these uh like tim burton cartoon characters so when people think of like mm. emo kids that's what they think of they think of you know the black dyed diagonal fringe and the 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 eyeliner and the the black and white kind of stripy tops and stuff but that was kind of a bit later on, but it was all these uh, all these kids, certainly all the kids that I would see around the um, the weirdo skate shops of Middlesbrough. Uh, we didn't have skate shops in Darlington. Mm-hmm. We weren't allowed them. Um, we're, we're all like, they're all wearing Jack Skellington backpacks. Well, my friend Leanne, 
she works at the Liverpool Disney store. And I, I was talking to her last night, actually, because I went up to see Star Wars with, with her husband, who's my mate. And I, I was like, oh, I'm discussing that before Christmas. And I know she's a fan and she loves Disney and she works there. I was like, can you give me a perspective on the merchandise from, from you? And she says, without a doubt, that the Nightmare Before Christmas stock, to this day, comes in a few weeks before Halloween, stays till Christmas, and completely sells out. No matter what, what it is, it's a really successful like brand of toys, clothing, mugs, Christmas it's tree always a new generation Halloween of decorations. kids. Hey, man. Mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. sells out every year, she was telling me. And it's, it's crazy, because I, I think it can you think of anything else that's so mainstreamly like Halloween or, and that treads the line of Halloween and Christmas and has, you know, like a children's horror film, so mm-hmm. to speak. I know we've got Corpse Bride, but Corpse Bride, I don't hold. I don't think, I don't think it made as, as, as big high, of a splash. Did it? Yeah. Yeah. And later on we get Coraline and we get, uh, you know, Paranorman and we get those things which, which do a really good job. But, this was i think you know was the original the the forerunner and it's it's become a bit mm. timeless I and think. it's to mm-hmm. do like mm-hmm. with with uh, you know like we say like the amount of work they put in it but also it is i guess maybe it's just because it is so like iconic like Coraline is a great film and i find it really kind of resonant and fantastically oh, well it's made creepy as fuck isn't it it's but um it's uh there's maybe a little there's there's a little more i don't, I don't want to say depth because it sounds like i'm taking the piss out of um nightmare before christmas yeah, but yeah it's, it, it has say. more like resonance it's about something more than whereas you know nightmare before christmas like you say is just about a kind of it's just quite a joyful celebration of something kind of fun and macabre and and it's it's kind of no more than that so and so to go back to um sort of maybe more adult themes the uh, the relationship and the dynamic between dr finkelstein and sally is not only really odd but i just i think this is probably my favorite little bit of interplay like the fact that she keeps uh, poisoning him. <laughs> i love the i mean i love the character design uh, of certainly Dr. Finkelstein. Uh, Sally, maybe less so. Sally but... is amazing. I know. Oh, I'm kind of. I'm no. kind of a little someone who can unzip herself and sew herself back up. She's incredible. I love her powers, or uh, <laughs> you know, she 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 has visions as well. You know, I do. I love the the kind of the concept of the character, but I'm not sure she's as memorable in design. Oh, I th- I, I think so. I I, do, oh, I would just. I I'm just basing disagree. this on like purely anecdotal evidence. So last Halloween, me and um, me and and my partner, we um, we were making t-shirts. I bought a bunch of t-shirt paints because you know I like to do way too much shit about around Halloween. And we and we Halloween. made like we made yeah, uh, yeah. Halloween t-shirts, and mine was obviously Halloween three season of the witch themed. Halloween three wow. season. Um, but uh, uh, Kiara um, immediately. Did uh, a a painting of uh, Sally. First thing she thought of, straight off the top of her head, was was to was oh, to do okay. a t-shirt with, with right, Sally yeah. on it. And I love the way that she's animated. Again, this is something from the the making of where they said that because she's been sti- like stitched. Oh, together, when she's stumbling yeah, around, she's, she's sort of lurches sometimes, and she's off center, and she stoops, and it's very cool. 
One of the things that I think this film does pioneer is the idea that, because I never mentioned this at the beginning of the, the episode, but I normally, and it's a bit of a stigma, but and it's wrong, I know, but every time I think of animation, no matter what kind of animation, you think, or I certainly do, I think kids film. So with that comes a certain expectation. Normally, okay, it'll be for kids, and I'll just kind of sit there and maybe find something what this film does and it and i think you know we see it later with the way that pixar delivers and pretty much now every other animated film that comes out you have to cater to both right adults and kids and i think this film does that and this little story dynamic where she's almost like enslaved it's kind of frankenstein but with frankenstein's uh, monster being you know wanting to to break free and him being oppressor it's quite adults, mm. but you know they don't patronise the kids. So Doctor Finkelstein is a mean, horrible old man, and later on in the film, he kind of gets what he wants. But we're not supposed to feel happy about it. It's a plot. Yeah, we are. It's a plot point because he's an adult theme again. A man creating a woman for his own yeah. company. It's it's quite an adult theme there, and it's quite tricky to you know. But it is the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein type thing. But it's it's actually one of the bigger plot points in the film because in Dr. Finkelstein letting Sally go, it allows Jack to be with Sally at the end of the film. Well, he allows her to go because he's created someone else. An almost identical wife for himself that has half his brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he yeah. can have stimulating conversations with her. When he kisses that brain <laughs> yeah. and her head claps forward on his lips. <laughs> it's, um, you're right, it is. There's, there's a lot kind of... That is kind of a fucked up dynamic. I appreciate the fact that they're doing that because, like you say, I'm older now. And as a kid, that might maybe go over your head and you might just think, oh, he's being mean to her. But as an adult, yeah, you can yeah. kind of watch it and see see different layers. But this film does have that. And that's why I think, again, one of the reasons why it's resonated is that I do think you can, you know, family of, of all ages, minus maybe my cutoff would be probably three. I think if you're below three, I probably wouldn't watch this. but. Um, but I think families of all ages can watch this. Can we talk a bit more about Danny Elfman's music? Yes, we can. Because I, you, you, we didn't mention him before about whose film is this, but I think this is as much Danny Elfman's as it is Tim Burton's and Henry Selleck. Kind of. I'd have to agree with you, yeah. The space in between songs is quite brief in this film. Um, at the beginning, yeah. anyway. And, and when we get to the second song, which is, I, I think it's called The Pumpkin King. Uh, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, Jack, The Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old thing. The a, the, the imagery of him walking up that hill, silhouetted by the full moon, singing this somber, beautiful like um, monologue song is, is amazing. But then still having fun with it. And the lyrics that Danny mm. Elfman creates, like, uh, and since I am dead, I could take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotation. <laughs> Again, it's... It's fun for children. Yeah. It's a kind of adults can And it's really it. wordy. Like he's not he's not dumbing down the, the, the lyrics. I've noticed that the, the Oh um, god no. No, not not which, at all. which is really great. Like kind of very like lots of kind of wordplay and, and, and stuff. It's it's very um I it's, yeah, again from watching it this time, I was like, there's a lot to dig into on these songs. They're really dense. Gally said it and he's right in we don't need dance number. We don't. We don't need that. It's it's very theatrical in um, in forms of you know just the delivery of the song. It's the staging. It's the the camera's movement and the aesthetic and and production design that really add to the song. I think we get a bit more kind of dancey stuff in the third song, which is um, Jack's wandered off. He finds 
uh, the the circle of trees for the holidays, and he he's very attracted to the Christmas tree, and he goes in. Um, Zero watches him get with that um, that amazing shot in the doorknob. Oh my god, it's incredible! I still don't know how they did it. I'm 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 still watching it, thinking, is this an optical with stop frame, and also and also because it is unbelievable. I don't know what it is. It's quite nice to see some contrast in the cinema in, in the design of it. You know, like Christmas Town is mm-hmm. very bright and full of snow and colourful, and you get the happy elves. Still a little creepy think, though, aren't I they? Think Tim Burton's designs. The elves. Well, Tim Burton's designs have always been. You know, he, he's obsessed with suburbia and that kind of clean, uh, clean cut American. Mm-hmm. And I think this is his portrayal of that. Uh, we get a bit more of it in the in the human world, but he he does have that about him where. He makes it creepy, even though it's they're supposed to be the ide- idyllic uh, uh, people or, or whatever. But um, what's this is a great number as well, isn't it? It's... Um, and we see Jack's long legs running around the place, excited, and there's energy and music and color and light. And what's this is fa- I, my favorite shot in it is the wide shot when he's when he's riding the train, yeah. and we pull back and he sleds down and he comes up. He's storming up the hill and. Ah, it's just a fantastic number. What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. What's this? The streets are lined with little creatures laughing. Everybody seems so happy. Have I possibly gone daffy? What is this? What's this? Children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. The busy building toys and absolutely no one's dead. There's frost in every window. Oh, I can't believe my eyes. And in my bones I feel the warmth that's coming from inside. This time what, what struck me so much every time was just the insane choreography of keeping all this stuff on track. And being so... And never really dwelling on anything. Like, the things are impressive, but... Like like we say, the whole thing is over in barely seventy minutes, so it really does just kind of rattle through past every time you you you've taken something in, it's onto the next thing. Uh, can I make mention of? I think so. I'm struggling on my favorite character, but in these tumultuous political times in the UK, one of my favorite characters is the mayor, who has the mayor. Yes, who has the two heads that uh, flip from one to happy to sad and when he says jack please i'm only an elected official here i can't make decisions <laughs> by myself i just think that is absolutely brilliant and again like that might fly over your kid's head and they might just laugh because he falls down the steps no the main is great i do like the design he has the spiral eye which you know we spoke about the, the lines uh, of tim burton's design and I like the vampires who have umbrellas to hide themselves from the sun. Yeah. You know, the little details and all of this is fucking... The, the head in the... Is it the cello? Oh, God, yeah. There's the... The, uh, the, the It's in like the... Yeah, the, in the double the Danny, bass. The Danny Elfman it's, head. Yeah. Yeah, the double bass. That's amazing. <laughs> Jack has been inspired, hasn't he? He's gone to Christmas Town, and it's kind of given the, the va-va-voom to, to kind of go, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create my own Christmas and uh, and this, this well, he doesn't actually think yeah. that. He just point. he just wants to. Is he just trying? Is he just trying to work work out what it is? So he, he takes well, he right. takes everything back to his um his, his lab afterwards, and he's just doing just weird experiments, isn't he? 
Like he's trying yeah. to determine what. And he says, doesn't he? There's got to be some logical explanation mm. for this. I love the formula. Because <laughs> he keeps calling him Sandy, Sandy Claws as well, which is a great, um, it's a great joke. It's when he meets him and goes, you've got hands. You don't have claws at all. <laughs> a lot of times these kind of Christmas specials will, will tend to hinge themselves on like, it's actually about family. Whereas this one is, it kind of avoids that sort of saccharine stuff, really. It makes it, it simplifies yeah. it, doesn't it? It, it makes it, because I think Jack's seeing it on a, on a very simplistic level. that He's just seeing it and this is his understanding of it. So I think that's what the message that they're conveying here. We're seeing it through Jack's eyes in a way. And that's why he fails, because he doesn't understand mm. Christmas. But of course, like Santa in Christmas Town does, whereas Santa in Christmas Town could, uh, San- yeah, couldn't, you know, do Halloween. And it's, it's kind of, I don't know whether the message, that message in particular is, comes across fully understood. But that's what I get from it now, uh, obviously, as an adult, watching it four times in the last week. I'm going to disagree with you there, Devlin. It's not saccharine, but I think this is... And maybe maybe we'll ask this question now, because obviously there is a little bit of a... Is this a Christmas film? Is this a Halloween film? But I absolutely thought that this was all about family. You know, Jack goes away, tries to... Culturally appropriates Christmas, tries to change his identity... And then by the end of the film has realized that it's all about being true to yourself. And I thought that's what the the parallel yeah, was. But that's not exactly about yeah. family, is it? That's about, no, no, but that's it, about no, trusting it, who you are. Really. No, trusting who you are. But then you go, he goes back to Halloween Town and, he, and they are his family, aren't they? That's how I took it. It's not as, um, you know, it's not as blunt, blunt force to the face. They are his fam- I don't know about that. I feel like he finds... There's a great moment where Sally refers to him as, in the song, he says, what will come of my best friend? And there's that that is a really strong element between Sally and him. But I don't know about, as a community, you know, like Christmas films, like Devlin said, they're born of family or love and even community. And I don't think the community side of things, you know, I think he's just happy with who... He, he gets the hunger back, I think, after his experiment with Christmas. And I think he gets the drive back to be who he is and to take that responsibility. I don't know whether it's about the Halloween Town family. I don't know. For me, that message doesn't come across fully. No, no. And I, and I actually think that um, uh, maybe the overall message of the film probably doesn't come across as, as maybe as strong as it could have had, let's say, the script's been written prior to the songs. Because I think that's maybe one of the only issues I have with the film is that the story element is not that it's neglected, but you can tell that they had the songs and then everything else feels like it's been stitched together to to, to try and piece a story that fits those songs, which makes sense. And the songs do a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think the fact that we're sort yeah. of disagreeing about what the overall theme of it is probably speaks to the fact that there are, that it's kind of muddled. Well, well, and then also, is it a Halloween film or is it a Christmas film? Well, see, now I'm thinking it's all about being true to yourself and uh, and being proud of where you're from. So I'm going to say it's a, a Christmas film, but then you're going to probably disagree. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I think it's a Christmas film. I, I, I'm on the Christmas uh, spectrum. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, it's it, the only the only holiday you actually see in the in the thing is Christmas. Um, so I mean. You know, it's it's set at Christmas. You get to, even though it's um, you know, it's uh, it's Jack out there ruining Christmas for everyone and giving them shrunken heads. 
it is still it is still Christmas <laughs> that's displayed on screen. Um, which that moment with the first kid who gives the box and he turns around with the head to his parents. I think that's one of the funniest things. Yeah. Oh, well, and they and they knew that. I mean, it was in the, it was in every trailer for the film, wasn't it? They knew that that was a particular image oh. that would really hit. Well, it kind so of encapsulates the, the whole thing, doesn't it? And that's I think that's when I say that it's not particularly saccharine. I think that's what I mean. That like um, and also before when I said that it's whereas something like Coraline seems to hint at deeper things. Coraline is about um, you know, it's a there's it's properly about family. It's properly yeah, it really is about and, and you know whether the <clears throat> excuse me whether the family that you have uh, when it doesn't measure up to the family that you want or the family that you think you want and and there's. There's stuff that you can mine from it, whereas this, I really do think that it's like a, a kind of a fun, breezy, iconic run through. You know, um, I think it's a, I think it's enough that it can just be a kind of a fun subversion of the usual Christmas stuff. Because I get outside of like grimy 1970s and 1980s slashes like Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Don't Open Till Xmas. There wasn't much in the way of subversion of Christmas, really. Yeah. No, mate. Black Christmas, the Which original. Again, again. Nowadays, we get a lot more like Black Christmas. Yeah. And did you see Krampus? I fucking love Krampus. I, he he, oh, he I does love Krampus. I, I, I <laughs> fell for Krampus so hard. I thought it was. Whereas that has. I, got, well, um, I just remembered uh, that Gremlins exists, and I don't know how I forgot. Gremlins is the. Gremlins is the. <laughs> Is the original kind of subversion of the, in fact, that is the quintessential subversion mm-hmm. of the small town Americana Christmas because it's like, here's this, you know, adorable town that could quite easily be the town from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, except there's monsters ripping everyone to shreds. <laughs> um, so we spoke about Oogie Boogie and I quite like the way he's introduced, you know, it's that subtle, uh, suggestive thing, but it's not until we actually capture, um, Sand, Sandy Claus, uh, and that great joke we touched upon as well, when he says he checks his hands, like you've got hands, you haven't got claws at all, which is a really cool little gag as well. But um, Sandy is then bumped off to Oogie Boogie's, what do we call it, like a casino den dungeon thing, right? It's quite cool. Uh, I don't know whether any of you see the Princess and the Frog. Uh, I have not. No. Well, it, it's set in uh, New Orleans, though, right? It is, yeah. It was it was Disney's yeah. first kind of hand drawn animation for a long time. They had to bring in a lot of a lot of their old equipment because they, you know, they'd gone on to computer animated films for the animation. But um, there's a character in uh, Princess and the Frog. Sorry, he uh, Doctor Facilia, and he has a like a kind of voodoo song number in it and i feel like this is the first time since nightmare before christmas disney's really gone that kind of dark and proper creepy because mr oogie boogie song with all the neon lights and the the menace and the threats in it it's, it's quite it's quite cool and funky isn't it yeah you're right in, in the um especially with the when you get the black light sequence and it just looks so visually different from everything that's come before it um it's also just a really unusual and really fascinating way to light something like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because that's not his true color, but you know he, he's quite greened up in the black light, and it it does make him really stand out. And uh, again, I, I think it's more. This is definitely that debate of Halloween versus Christmas. This is more tended towards the Halloween side of things. But uh, poor Santa Claus, he's <laughs> he must be shitting himself. <laughs> 
I um I I I thought it was a really clever way of uh, of going deeper and deeper. Do you know how like Halloween Town is? We go down into it and it's down into the depths and into the shadows. And I think Oogie Boogie's layer is like another another level below. And that's kind of how I saw it. And the, I'm glad you mentioned the um the New Orleans influence because that was the one bit that I couldn't really make a connection between his character and the fact that he's in this casino. And uh, and this isn't to try and uh, like try and stoke any kind of fire. There's no racial connotations, is there? It's just it's just happenstance, is it? Because it looks pretty cool. I think so. I, I think you could go deeper, and because Oogie Boogie uh, sings in a certain style, shall we say? Um, oh, I've got to be we've got to be careful with this. You know, he's voiced by Ken Page, and um, which it, I don't know whether that comes across that it's played by a, a black man and that voice comes across there, but I don't think that the cultural uh idea of Oogie Boogie comes from that at all. I think his 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 song, the Oogie Boogie song, is is probably my favorite in the entire film. I love the fact that it sounds like an old western saloon piano, and then you've got this like almost cabaret brass stuff coming in. I think it's my favourite favourite track in the entire film. Well, well, well. What have we here? Santa Claus, huh? Ooh, I'm really scared. So you're the one everybody's talking about. <laughs> you're joking. You're joking. I can't believe my eyes. You're joking me. you got to be. This can't be the right guy. He's ancient. I might just split a seam now if I don't die laughing first. Mr. Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, cause I'm the boogeyman. And if you aren't shaking, there's something very wrong. Cause this may be the last time you hear the boogie song. There's a little bit of a tie-in to, um, you know, you've got the uh, the, the three-piece band that you see in the streets and stuff playing the kind of really dirgy kind of... Um, that's that's kind of loosely New Orleans kind of jazz, right? Like, the, you know, the, the more kind of spooky, dreary form of New Orleans jazz. Yes, it is, yeah. You know, the... the so um, that kind of does tie in a little thematically. And also there's there's little flourishes of that throughout in um in the score as well so it, it's probably just that like that kind of new orleans southern gothic type stuff just fits quite well so you know maybe they just thought it would be a good showcase for a for a guy with a voice like ken pages yeah and i think uh i think oogie boogie is genuinely quite scary uh like even later on when his sack is peeled away and he's just a ball of bugs i mean that is that's a really powerful image, yeah. and uh, I think it's it's again it's one of those moments where I was like, "How did you do when this?" It, when he's, uh, how did when you create it? Santa, and it's this almost seductive horror, you know, with the snake coming mm. out of his mouth towards him, and um, the spiders come out of his eyes at one point as well. That I think they even yeah, stop seeing. Yeah. It's really really cool, um, but horrible effect, and it's. Uh, I suppose, you know, in this film you have a lot of um, 
these monsters that kids are kind of familiar with folklore that seems to be you know the creature from the black lagoon the wolf man that we spoke about vampires and to create something really original like oogie boogie man because the, the boogie man is is something that we're familiar with as well but to, to give it a face and and call it give it a bit of originality oogie boogie is a great mm. creation i don't know much about the um the the actual you know like the bogeyman or the boogeyman or, or whatever it is because it's really it does seem to be very general right yeah like the idea of what what the boogeyman could be because they like they reference it in halloween and stuff it just seems to be a kind of a general faceless antagonist yeah i always took it i always took it as like stephen king's it it's whatever whatever actually scares you is the um is what's coming out to get you you know so it's clowns spiders um, werewolves, whatever. And the Oogie Boogie Man has yeah. incredible typically... sucking skills. <laughs> <laughs> Is he ever depicted uh, as a sack, though, or like, or as a sack monster, or is that something that they that they created for this? I'm, 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 I don't know. I don't really I don't know. know. Probably should have looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that South Park were the first to torture Santa, but clearly. The Nightmare Before Christmas did, so it was uh, it was great. <laughs> Not Santa's, Santa's balls. balls. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite telling, though, as well, that uh, for the audience and for children as well, that Jack is wary of Oogie Boogie. You know, he says, leave that no good Oogie Boogie out of it to lock shock and barrel. So it's mm. kind of, the narrative's good and consistent. Yeah. I, I won't lie, Patrick, I could have done with a little bit more conflict between Oogie Boogie and Jack. So it's testament to Ken Page, to the design of the character, to Danny Elfman's song and music that he makes such an impression because he's not on screen for very, very long. But that's pretty much the only line we get. And we, I would like to maybe, maybe Yugi Boogie was trying to get the throne as well or something like that. They could have set up earlier, but instead he's just this, like you say, lingering threat in the background. And then he comes in in the final sort of 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I, I would have maybe pr- liked a bit more of a thread that follows through. Um, but we do get one line at least. Yeah, but I think I think more, the more important narrative is that Jack's his own worst enemy in a way as well. It's the final climactic battle between the two. And I guess I could have done with more than just he's a, he's a bad sack of bugs. But that's all. That was all. You know, it's a, it's a minor point. This is where Jack's finally realised his dream. He's got Santa's hat now, which was the missing piece. He's got his flying reindeer, thanks to Dr. Finkelstein. And But Sally, Sally's the voice of reason, isn't she? she she's the one who realises. She has a premonition, Christmas going up in flames, and off off Jack. Well, Jack wants to go, but she, because um, we know she's very good with ingredients, she puts fog into the water, which is a really cool uh, effect as well. You know, we spoke about the reel and the stop frame animation that the smoke's rotoscoped on and layered in, which is quite cool. And um, this is where Tim Burton, he, he kind of grew up liking Christmas uh, films as well, because one of his influences for this was The Grinch That Stole Christmas, and he, he liked um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when he was growing up as well, that they were these memories of children's kind of uh, cartoons and, and things um, growing up around Christmas. And so we get Zero, who's got his red nose, who can help Jack uh, lead his uh, lead him on his way. And there is an element to that Grinch, I think you can think about that Jack Skellington is quite like the Grinch, but in reverse, you know, he, he finds Christmas and loves it, whereas the Grinch 
has to learn to love it after years of being fed up of it. Um, which I, got, I quite like that, the idea of that. Sally was correct all along. Yes, she was. And I think Santa says it, doesn't it, at the end when he's like, you should listen to her. She's the only one who makes any sense yeah. in this crazy world. And it's a really... Uh, Insane it's a really asylum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sally... I I wanted a little bit more. I know she's got her own subplot where she's trying to uh, escape oppression, but I think I thought because we're dealing with a film about somebody trying to sort of find a new identity and then eventually being happy with themselves. So we have Jack who tries to become Sandy Claus and then realizes actually I am the Pumpkin King and that is no that's no bad thing. I I kind of wanted that a little bit of kind of a parallel with Sally, but we don't really get it. She just sort of longs for Jack. And, well, I don't and know she does you escape her oppression. You, because I, I, I think Sally is quite an assured individual. You know, that she's she's mischievous, she's smart, she uh, is unhappy with her life, which is Dr. Finkelstein. So, you know, does what all she can to... Um, to overthrow him when, when she escapes and she cares for Jack and sends up the basket. I don't know whether the identity of Sally is a, a problem. I, I think she's quite happy with who she is, but maybe she needs to find her voice a bit more, whether that comes from Sally's song and her actions that are underhanded uh, to, you know, with the best intention. It's quite, um, it's quite traditional though. Like when you think what her arc might end up being, which is basically just, um, she is, kind of under the thumb of a of a patriarchal parental figure and she has to escape that but she escapes it into the arms of her kind of you know her beloved male i guess yeah which which is kind of very traditional it's kind of trading up one man for another but it's in the context of a thing which is essentially kind of laid out like a like a fable really so we're not going to be expecting that it's going to be a female empowerment anthem. With all of that that you're saying about Sally, what what do you think of her character development with Sally's song? Because that that's this is a real lovely little sequence. I think Catherine O'Hara sings this so beautifully because when you listen to the song, she's so close to sort of reaching like her voice breaking, and I think that actually adds more character to Sally you know because she's she's been put together and we're you know we've already said that visually she's stumbling around will she won't she fall over will her arm come off and I think that the way that Catherine O'Hara sings this song kind of perpetuates that that feeling it certainly did for me I was um I was quite emotional yeah I've got to say I like Sally's song quite a lot. I like um, 
the melody of it and i like that it's reprised at the end that that's that's her uh, i suppose it's her you know heart on her sleeve and hopeful for my best friend does she call him my best friend in it um which i think is a really nice uh sentiment and when we get the resolution at the end and jack and her come together that's one of my i think as a finale i know i'm skipping ahead here right to the end but as a finale piece and an image a lasting image of um fr- well first and foremost friendship between them and resolution mm. and you know being comfortable with each other and finding solace and again we reprise a the song sally's song with different lyrics and we reprise the uh the hill with the full moon in the background but now it's covered in snow you know it's like before christmas we get the christmasy element santa's brought some cheer to christmas to halloween town we get the reprise of um other songs as well but i i if i if i may just the the last lyrics i love so much um and again it's my dearest friend if you don't mind i'd like to join you by your side where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever for it is plain as anyone can see we're simply meant to be it's great oh, i love that it's warmed my heart how are you doing Devlin? are you getting all christmasy <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, are you going <laughs> you know I've, i'm a changed man no more happy holidays for me i will marry christmas you are the grinch I will marry this is where, Christmas. And the Grinch to each is so Christmas. We zoom into your chest and your shriveled heart is <laughs> blossoming. And I'm gonna <laughs> and I'm gonna drop my little crutches and I'm not gonna die of tuberculosis. <laughs> I'm gonna be okay. And Gally, I know you're a stickler for a tear, so did did this bring one for you? Did I cry, Patrick? Uh no. Did I feel emotional? Yes. And and it really did. It it you know. It, uh, it was like Yoda. It brought warm feelings to my heart. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was very impactful. What I will say about the love story is that it does feel very similar to Edward Scissorhands. Obviously, it's role reversed. So Sally is, you know, the the cobbled together Frankenstein's monster, whereas in Edward Scissorhands, obviously, it's Edward Scissorhands. And um, and it it, I, it struck me that it was the same screenwriter, uh, Caroline Caroline Thompson, hmm. who also has written a few um, Tim Burton films, and uh, and I thought it had roughly the same effect. But I, what I will say is, when I watch Edward Scissorhands, it gets me every time. I do cry at the ice dance, and I do wonder if maybe we had one more scene. If I wonder oh, if we had time. one more scene together between Sally and Jack, that maybe that would have tipped me into into going full-blown mm. normal galley crying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, because the, the time that they spend together is kind of, it's it's a bit furtive. Like it's her bringing the basket and then running away before he, he picks it up. And then later when she's trying to talk to him when he's arranging Christmas or Halloween Christmas, um, he's, he's, just, conflict there, isn't he's it? just kind of intentionally ignoring her because he's wrapped up in what he's doing. So yeah, you don't. You're right in that you don't really get a scene with the two of them, kind of on the same wavelength. Although, you kind of, I think, you, you kind of you buy it from just the, the fantastic model making on Sally's face. It's really expressive, and also yeah, Catherine O'Hara being uh, a, a tremendous voice actress. I, again, if if anyone has the DVD or can watch it on YouTube, the making of. The, the that was really incredible thing to see how they do the faces and and the, 
the sheer amount of faces and they yeah. burn through them and you know like it, it there was that really great technology that they have where they can type in a sentence right you saw jack's face mm. you know it would tell you which face can do which letter yeah they broke down uh, the the syllables and what the so what the mouth good. shape would be and then it's like a which yeah, which of the 400 heads you should be using um, did you guys see adding um, in the eyes to do blinking yeah. and all of that? Did you guys see um, really Anomalisa, the Charlie Kaufman movie? No, it didn't. I, I know, it, I know what you mean. Um, I, yeah, just to say, I was a very big fan of that, and uh, they had a similar thing, which was that uh, they used the same kind of mask that they use for Sally, which is um, a, yeah. a face mask that, that gets kind of plastered onto an armature. Um, and I remember watching a, a making of of that and they, they went through a similar thing, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different, very subtle, uh, movements and expressions, but, um, you can, yeah, like you say, you can, you can really tell the difference between something like this and a lot of kind of lesser, more rushed kind of family fare. I think it's the difference between a Hollywood, major Hollywood studio making it and, and cause you know, like this taking three years and that, that whole process and lighting it cinematically and using the motion control cameras and creating like proper cinema here compared to um, the limitations of what I imagine uh, Aardman had at the time. Yeah. Because um, Aardman, I, I, I love Aardman. They can't do a foot wrong for me. But I, there, there must be a reason that they didn't do a feature film till 2000, whereas here Disney did. Maybe it was mm. money. Maybe it was facilities. Well, yeah, and there's got to be sense. a limited amount of people um, in the in the planet that could really achieve this as well. Yeah. And it must just be a, a sense of really fortuitous timing. Like the fact that Tim Burton's kind of run of success bought him the 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 leverage to be able to, to pull something like this off. Like, I mean, a, a he would have had Edward Scissorhands was a was a big success. Beetlejuice was a big success. Uh, the Pee Wee stuff that he did did really well. And then he would have just come off Batman being at the time was what the if not one if not the biggest then one of the biggest films ever made when it came out. He was just granted this little window of opportunity to go and make what you could only describe as a passion project and to be able to yeah, convince yeah. Disney to hire his his very talented very strange mates and give them three years and what did they say like 20 sound stages yeah 19 or 20 to to build and in incredible detail and depth and kudos to burton for hiring selick because i mean selick's a visionary yeah it's not just tim burton's voice we get here i think the aesthetic and and the the signature that we've spoken about that is like i said galley this is undeniably Tim Burton's involved in this, you know, you, you can see it a mile away. But Selick's storytelling, and I think he's, he's the way he uses the camera and design in this, I thought it's just, it's amazing. I, I, we, I'm skipping ahead. You usually ask me what I think, and if I, I'm going to hit you, cut you off. Like, I love this film. I adore yeah. it. I, I haven't wasted, I haven't wasted any of my childhood on this whatsoever. And this is why I bought little baby Owen his mobile with, with the, I want to, to introduce him to the characters and, and the faces and get him up and running in this as soon as I can, because this in my household, this is, this is a big film. Um, and how about, I'll go with you first, Gally, and then we'll see how the Grinch feels about this. <laughs> um, right. Well, uh, truly, in my opinion, an artistic masterpiece. 
And I don't say masterpiece very lightly. I think uh, I think the film will inspire. I think it entertains. And I think it scares. And I think that is actually really important for younger children to experience in their development, is to be scared. And uh, and for me, this is like the apex of Tim Burton and his aesthetic. Uh, we have all the trademarks executed in an, an extraordinary fashion. But I think this film, genuinely, I think it still resonates. And I think it still stands the test of time. Even against the technical evolution of CGI, Toy Story, Pixar, I put this one right next to it. Honestly, I really do. I think um, I think because you get a visceral, tactile animation that that has to like inspire kids because it certainly inspired us, and we ended up, you know, I ended up listening to Papa Roach and Corn for crying out loud. It's a it's a really strong recommendation and. Uh, Thank you, Patrick, for picking it because I I really hadn't watched it for seven years, and uh, you've rekindled my love for the Nightmare Before Christmas. So thank you very much. Good, and just in time for Christmas, Gally. Just to, just for you. and then Devlin and you, and tell me a bit about your when, when you reflect on this, just a bit about the musical aspect as well, because I'm always interested to see how you respond to a musical. Okay, cool. Well, just to say, first off, that as much as I am grinching it up, I do actually fucking love Christmas films, <laughs> especially rubbish ones. I've, um, yeah, I got no problem with Christmas. I like Christmas films, and this was one that was on my rotation, but yeah, it wasn't one that I'd, I guess I hadn't put much, like, thought into it. It was just a case of, I always really like this one. It's, it's, um, a lot of Christmas films I'll watch just because they are at Christmas, and I like the sort of, I like the, trashiness of it like i find it all like really kind of kitsch in a really fun way just you know you can do any old film and you shove a bunch of jingle bells on the soundtrack and you know rocking around the christmas tree and stuff and everything's covered in lights and then suddenly it's a christmas film and thus it's better um but this one like getting to rewatch it kind of to sit down and actually pay attention to it a little more meticulously um there's, I think there's a there's a different aspect to a, the musical not being performed by people on a soundstage makes a huge difference for me. I'll, I'll suspend my disbelief a lot easier, uh, a lot more easily for something like that. So I, I really enjoy the songs in this because. Uh, it's just it, it makes a lot more sense to me as like a, it's it's got such a sort of unified aesthetic to it and the songs flow quite naturally and like we said it they replace you know they replace dance and movement with uh with animation and and camera movement and the, the it's it's constantly on the move and um so yeah no i i, I do I, I really enjoy the the songs and i think it would be a, a much lesser film without it he he went on to do the corpse bride which is a very similar film but i don't think i think we've all kind of said at some point that it wasn't quite as successful and it didn't quite hit us in the same way and i think maybe that is because it's longer and they spend more time on um on on kind of more standard dialogue sequences and it just it doesn't quite have the same uh propulsion to it this one does um so yeah i i think it's I think it's great, and much like with you, Gally, with your um, with your new metal phase, I think we all, I think we all went there, uh, and it is like a really great kind of primer to if this is a, 
I guess some could argue that that maybe like that sort of aesthetic, like a kind of you know a quote unquote goth aesthetic, was mainstreamed in in such a way as to kind of neuter it. You don't really see goths around these days, and that makes me sad because I love seeing. But you a goth do around. see Jack like, Skellington jumpers around these days. You do. You see, kind of. So it's it's been kind of brought into you know, like it's it's made it a lot more egalitarian. And that it's a little kind of a little bit of the macabre that people can dip into and stuff. My eldest niece is currently three. Uh, I I feel like maybe I probably shouldn't be gothing it up too soon with her, but I will def. <laughs> I don't know whether I could get away with a mobile for her when she was, you know, a newborn. But <laughs> I'm gonna give it a couple of years. I'm thinking like maybe three years, uh, okay. and then and then I think I'm gonna. I'm going to start introducing it into the, the Christmas cycle and see what she thinks of it. Just, I've just thought, Gary, going back to your question about who, which age group would you recommend this for? For parents, you always refer them to the BBFC reports because there's really accessible children's BBFC reports as well to read and to see if there's anything in there that, that advises you against it. But I think you, you understand your children and their age and you, you'll know if they can, um, how responsive they'll be to this, I think. And if you want to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas, I don't think it's on any, um, it's not on any streaming it's, platforms at the minute, which is a, it's a shame. Not. You, you, you can rent to, uh, it from YouTube yeah. and Google and iTunes. I'm sure it'll be, I'm, I'm just going through the Radio Times, I'm sure it'll be on somewhere uh, over Christmas. Yeah, I would imagine I, so. If it was on ITV2 the other day, hopefully it'll be repeated somewhere, which is good. That brings us to you, Gally, doesn't it? It's your choice to bring in the new year. So uh, what cheer are you going to bring for us? I've been really deeply conflicted with what to choose next because I noticed when I looked at the roster of films that we've done that we've um, we've not done too many action films. But then I kept thinking about the new year and about, you know, new beginnings, aspiring to achieve, and I kept coming back to the same film. So... I've decided to disregard action. So we are going to discuss Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. Hey. Ah, oh, cool. Stillwater and the fever dog. <laughs> Scratching at my back door. Is that a euphemism? It certainly is when you've got me around. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to it. And that'll be in the new year. We've got a few, uh, we've got a few exciting things coming up in the new year. So, um, so yeah, look out for them. I guess all I will say is, um, a bit of Christmas festive giving and receiving. If you, uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at rewindcast. Uh, the show notes have got our individual Twitter handles. And obviously what we'd like is if you can uh, subscribe, review on iTunes. That would be amazing. Uh, and I guess it just leaves us to uh, say our goodbyes and a Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Yes, chaps? I concur. Merry Christmas. And we'll see you all in 2020 for more pointless rambles. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you, Dev, Dev Grinchmas. Um, uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year, and I look forward to seeing you, speaking to you later, boys. Cheers. For your enjoyment, here's some uh, Shaken Stevens. It's the season.
understand it. Merry Christmas, everyone.